Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to uh, see you. Great to be here with you today. Um, this is indeed the beginning of a new series, and boy, oh boy, a new series of tough questions, and straight away we're talking about sex. Um, many years ago, a pastor from another denomination said to me, you evangelicals, because that would be how I would identify myself as a Christian, as an evangelical Christian, you evangelicals are obsessed with sex. Um, you're always talking about it. You're always opposed to it. You, you've just got a problem with sex that you've got to get over. Um, I didn't agree with him, but I have to say that starting your series of tough questions with me coming and talking about sex would appear as if that is actually a correct observation. And uh, what really happened is that the first in the series um, was really supposed to be the topic, um, if bad Christians go to heaven and good atheists go to hell, how does judgment work? That's meant to be the first in the series, okay? If bad Christians go to heaven and good atheists go to hell, how does judgment work? Dale is preaching that sermon this morning, Dale Hanson, at St Andrews, and I'm preaching this sermon here, which is about number six in the series. We like to warm up to sex for a while before we talk about it. So I am sorry about that. Um, but also this morning, um, we've got uh, four clergy at St Andrews. One is recovering from the marathon um, and, for all I know, could be dead in a ditch, having had a heart attack. I have no idea whether I'll need to find a new assistant minister tomorrow. Um, our second one's away for the weekend at a retreat at, um, at uh, Chen Chow. And uh, Dale is doing baptisms this morning and he's baptising people that he's been preparing for baptism and so he couldn't come. So you've got me instead on this topic. Do you need to be a heterosexual to be a Christian? Um, and it's a, it's a very current topic because the whole issue of gay uh, being a gay Christian, let alone um, marriage for gays, is a, a really uh, hot topic both within the church and outside the church as well. And so um, I hope that this morning we might spend a little bit of time thinking about how we may respond to that question, do you need to be heterosexual to be a Christian? Now, what I want to do straight away um, is, is just a little, bit of, um, a little bit of a lesson in public speaking. Whenever anybody is going to do, speak publicly and you're going to address people, whether it's a sermon or whether it's a talk, um, whether it's a an academic exercise or whatever, um, when you're preparing the talk, you always have to think about who is my audience? Who am I speaking to? And certainly for sermons, a pastor will always have people in his mind, whether he can see their faces clearly or whether they're just kind of general people. Um, he can, he's, he's writing his sermon, or she, to specific people. He's speaking to specific people. So I had to ask myself the question as I prepared this, who am I speaking to? Um, who, who is my audience that I'm addressing? So I want to say this. Firstly, my audience as I talk about this question, do you need to be heterosexual and to be Christian? Um, now don't take this literally because there are people sitting at the front and in the middle and down the back, okay? But in my mind's eye, as I was preparing this 
discussion and talk and address. Right down the front are people in my mind's eye who identify as being homosexual Christians or homosexual non-Christians. They're right down the front and I'm speaking to them first. Okay, I'm not speaking at them, I'm speaking with them. And then in the middle, I think, would, would have been people who have loved ones who are homosexual people or friends or colleagues. And then sort of maybe then towards the back are Christians who are troubled by this whole issue. And then right down the very back, people who couldn't care less and who think it's all a big beat up and what's the problem anyway. Now, why I, I put people in that order is just simply it's, it's a lot easier to put the people who you don't really want to talk to right down the back and you can kind of talk about them, you know, rather than to them. But it's a lot harder if you're sitting up close with people when you're talking about a subject. So I want, in my mind's eye, I wanted the people who in this audience here today who may actually say I am uh, not of heterosexual sexual orientation. I am a homosexual person or a homosexual Christian. In a sense, I wanted them closest because I, I do really want to speak to them first and foremost and in a sense the rest of us can maybe listen in and understand. The second major thing I'm going to say, and then we're going to watch a, a brief video to set the scene, um, is that in my uh, late teen years, I moved to a branch church of the church that I'd grown up in all my life. I moved to the branch church and the pastor of the branch church um, was a uh, homosexual man. He wouldn't have admitted it then because that wasn't what you did in the, uh, the 70s. He was oppressed by it disgusted by it, um, bedeviled by it, uh, unable to admit it. Um, but nonetheless, that was what his sexual orientation was. He was a brilliant pastor. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant pastor. A wonderful Christian guy. And in the five or six years of ministry to me and my peers in the youth fellowship and then from above youth fellowship once we'd gone to university and beyond that, um, countless men and women went into full-time Christian ministry because of his mentoring and example and preaching and pastoring and the whole rest of it. He was a celibate homosexual man in an era where he could never have even admitted it to himself, let alone to anybody else. Um, sadly, he got to retirement age and he committed suicide. He committed suicide because he was full, I think, of self-loathing, which was not his fault. Full of self-loathing and also because as he came time to retire, he, he, he feared the loneliness of an existence where he's no longer in a Christian community as a pastor with people who loved him for who he was as a person and didn't, in a sense, make any judgments of him. And I think... To this day, what a great sadness that that's the case. And yet I owe my ministry mentoring and shaping and formation. The reason why I went into theological college, the reason why I went into ministry, if people say, how did you do it? It's because of this guy 
who actually mentored me as a young Christian and then shaped my thinking about going into, into ministry. And so I've always kept uh, John, his name. Uh, I've always kept John very much in my mind. And I wish to this very day that he was here and alive and living and that he could actually enjoy the blessing of his, him being a spiritual grandfather and great-grandfather to a whole host of people in ministry. Um, but he suffered the, con- the self-condemnation and the self-loathing and the loneliness of a lifestyle that he didn't choose for himself or of an orientation he didn't choose for himself. So that as I speak about this issue, um, I haven't got a personal experience of, um, of a, heter- a homosexual orientation, but I did live very closely and boarded for two years with someone who I hold very highly in my mind who struggled with this issue. Now, Vaughan Roberts is the Anglican clergyman um, of the church whose name I think is it St Ebbs? St Ebbs in Oxford. He came, he's an author, a pastor, a speaker. He came to speak at St Andrews late last year. Um, he came to speak in Hong Kong, actually, and he also spoke at St Andrews. Um, he has produced a five-minute video on this subject that I'd like us to watch before I then go further in what I'm going to say. Well, good on Vaughan for uh, producing that. That uh, comes off a website called Living Out. Not coming out, Living Out. And uh, the website Living Out has been uh, designed and created for a group of Christians to talk about those kind of issues and it can be downloaded, that and other videos can be downloaded from that site. Well, let's think for a moment then about the question, do you need to be heterosexual to be a Christian? I can understand why anybody would ask that question. Um, I think that if we are going to be really honest about church life and about church history, we'd have to say that churches, by and large, don't do different very well at all. Different. We, as churches, as Christians, have this twisted and broken way of operating that we know that there's meant to be this ideal and we know that we are not we don't conform to that ideal and so we're, we're down on ourselves because we fail to be the ideal of holy and so therefore then we are quite uh, overcompensatory towards others who we deem to be different and not the ideal as well. And I think that so often uh, in church life and in church history, whether it's within the church or whether it's in co- within culture, um, today around the world there are churches which are really struggling whether they know it or not with the whole tribal differences trying to get Christians of different tribes together in the same church people of different color people of different socio-economic parts of society um, people of different political backgrounds um, trying to get people together theologically There's an international pastor's fellowship in Hong Kong. It meets once a month um, on a Thursday morning and we pray. Uh, We sometimes have breakfast, we eat together, we talk, but we pray. 
And we have, in the eight years, nine years I've been back in Hong Kong, we have steadfastly refused to do anything else. We don't study the Bible together, not because it's not a good thing to study the Bible, but we would not agree. And it would, we would end up arguing with each other. And for, for nine years that I've been back, and it's been going longer than that, we just pray... And even that is a stretch for unity sometimes because, you know, there are the people who have got their hands up the whole time and the people who never put their hands up. And then we've got the people who want a, a dear Lord at the beginning and an amen at the end and the others who don't want that. And the praying that we do is sometimes a stretch for one group of people or another group of people. And we, we laugh and say, even in the bounds of Christian unity, just Praying together across a diverse range of theological backgrounds can sometimes be a stretch of patience. Um, but we don't do different well. And so when it comes then to sexual identity, I can well imagine that those who are not heterosexual might look at Christians and churches and say that Christians and churches are basically a private club for normal people and we welcome non-normal people as long as they know they're not normal and admit it and are sorry about it and will fix it up as quickly as they can. I think that's the way we generally like to work. We need non-normal people to know that they're not normal but if they hang out with us for long enough they'll just get over it and get it right, you know. Come to your senses. Thank you, I needed that. And you'll think right after a while. In other words, right thinking determines right actions. And there's a great truth to that, but it's not totally true. So I, I dig the question, do you need to be heterosexual to be a Christian? Because the person who, might, who did ask that question when we asked for those questions to come in and here at St Andrews, we did do that. We asked for questions. And then we asked for people to vote on the question. So this was a highly voted question. Um, I think that non-heterosexuals in our congregation might well say we kind of feel like it's a private club. And the entry into the private club is that you are healthily, happily, wholly heterosexual. Um, and those who are not that think that there are plenty of those in the church and I think, honestly, those who are heterosexual in the church must know that there is not a happy, healthy, holy heterosexual in the whole church, except we allow for Christ's holiness on our behalf. Um, so the, the, the answer to the question has to be, the question being, do you need to be heterosexual to be a Christian? No, you don't have to be heterosexual because our sexual orientation, our sexuality, has nothing to do with our faith in Jesus. Ultimately, the fact that we put our trust in Christ is not that action, that will, that transaction, that decision is not related to our sexuality or our politics or our views on this or that or something else. Everybody and anybody is equally able to respond to Christ in faith. And so therefore the thief on the cross 
is equally able, and we don't know why the thief was on the cross, what horrendous crimes he may have been he may have committed, you know. He may have clubbed baby seals for all we know. He may be, you know, the worst that we could possibly think of. Father murderer, mother murderer, rapist. He could, he could have done all sorts of terrible things. He's on the cross. He's, he's dying. He puts his faith in Jesus. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. At that point, his past, his history, had nothing to do with his present as he put his faith and trust in Jesus. So the question has to be answered by, uh, no, it doesn't mean you have to be heterosexual um, to be a Christian because every human being deserves nothing but judgment. But all human beings have been offered the free gift of eternal life. But if that's the case, then how does Chartin Church and St Andrew's Church and Resurrection Church and all other Christian churches in Hong Kong and beyond, how do we then respond to people who are generally different, but in this specific case, non-heterosexual people? Uh, homosexual people. How should we respond as a church to those sort of people? And I'm suggesting to you is that our Christian history is that we tend to want to be feeling superior. We want to feel in some way we're wired as if it's true that we look down on people who are different. I've said uh, uh, on a number of occasions, probably I've even said it here at Chartin Church, but I've certainly said it at St Andrew's Church, that many people say the church is full of hypocrites. Many people say that, and I disagree. I fundamentally disagree. If you look around this morning, look at all the empty seats. There's plenty of room for more hypocrites, are there not? We're not full. We're a long way from full. There's a lot more room. We need more hypocrites to come to church on Sunday. Because are we not all hypocrites? And when people say the church is full of hypocrites, I always say it's not true, we're not full. There's room for more. Come and join us. We all say one thing and do another. And only but by the grace of God are we able to even live as Christians. And so Vaughan is right. We are all broken. We're all broken. And that brokenness is something which is part and part of our daily Christian life life in reading genesis god creates humankind male and female heterosexual in wholeness and in holiness and that brokenness is immediately apparent when they commit their sin and in a very quaint kind of way sexual brokenness is immediately noted as one of the preeminent impacts of the fall when they were given clothes by god to cover their nakedness it's almost as if the preeminent indicator of human brokenness was the sexual brokenness that immediately seemed to um, intrude into their relationship. So God says in Genesis that we are created man and woman and humankind is man and woman who become one flesh. And I think therefore then we are all in the same boat. We are all in the same boat. We are all broken people. And some people um, will have certain sorts of brokenness that others may not experience. But I would say, as as Vaughan says in his video, sexually we're all broken. Sexually we are all broken. Because our sexuality 
is a, a beast that we have to tame. And none of us have got it tamed. Just like our tongue, our mouth. James says it's a beast that needs to be tamed and we cannot tame it. You know that that's your experience as well as mine. That there are many ways in which our lives are full of brokenness. That is an inability to control ourselves and to live lives in a way in which God would have us live. God says, I am holy and so therefore you will be holy. So therefore, then when we come to our sexuality, the Bible very early on defines holiness um, in a heterosexual way and in fact any sexual relationship or activity that is not bound within a covenantal or marriage relationship of one man and one woman, any, any sexual activity that's not, not confined within the one man, one woman covenantal relationship in the Bible has been prohibited. And that is the consistent teaching all the way through scripture. So sex between a man and a woman who are not married has been prohibited. It's not within a covenantal marriage relationship. Sex between a man and a woman where one or both is already married to someone else, that's prohibited as well. The Bible tends to talk about fornication as being sex between a man and a woman outside marriage and adultery as being sex with a man and a woman where one or both of them are married to somebody else. But both those kind of heterosexual activities are prohibited by scripture. And neither should marriage be seen as some kind of biblical safety zone for you can do what it once you're married you can do whatever you like Um, marriage between siblings brother and sister for instance is prohibited just the fact that a man and a woman are married doesn't necessarily mean that that marriage or that sexual behavior is actually blessed by God as holiness so therefore using an obvious example a brother and a sister um, a father and a daughter those kind of relationships, although they're heterosexual and although they are apparently within the bounds of a marriage, they are not, as far as God is concerned, holiness in action. It's been a big thing in Australia in this last week or two where a a 34-year-old man had been discovered to be married married to a 12-year-old girl. And uh, he's been arrested the father's been arrested the cleric who conducted the ceremony has been arrested and there's a big debate going on right now in Australia how could that sort of thing happen Um, but it just underlines the fact that when we when we're talking about homosexuality we need to understand that it's not in, in a vacuum it's part of a much wider set of arguments and so when we say that heterosexual sex is blessed by God it's only blessed by God as holiness within a marriage a covenantal marriage relationship which is exclusive one man one woman and so therefore what I'm saying is that many forms of sexual expression be they heterosexual are still condemned 
by God and prohibited. Marriage between siblings, um, incest, sex without marriage, marriage and sex without legal consent, such as what I've just explained, happened. Even polygamy, even more than one wife. Now, polygamy is a difficult thing to talk about. I'm not going to spend uh, hardly any time talking about it today. Uh, my shorthand way of talking about polygamy in the Bible, you know, a man with many wives, you, 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 I don't think I'm aware of any example in the Bible where a woman has many husbands except the woman that Jesus meets, and that's a serial husband. Um, and there are plenty of men with serial wives. But you do get in the Bible a man with many wives. And, and it's, it's certainly part of a socio-economic and historical milieu from the past, in the Bible anyway, even though there are some parts of the world where polygamy still persists today. Um, but I remember that my Old Testament professor said to me, when you look in Scripture, it's never up, upheld as an example to follow. It's never, as it were, blessed. It's tolerated and it never ends up being a blessing for the guys who have more than one wife. It always ends up being trouble for them, which is not to say that wives per se are trouble, um, but just that the Bible tolerates it, but in the passing of time, the, the consistent biblical and Christian teaching becomes one man and one woman. So if we allow for that, that God's holy provision for sexual activity is within a covenantal marriage, heterosexual relationship, all sorts of heterosexual sexual activity outside that created provision is prohibited by God. All homosexual sex because it's outside that covenantal heterosexual relationship and provision that God has given us. All homosexual sex is prohibited. And it would go without saying that sexual activity with anything else, other be it not man and not woman, is also prohibited by God. Just like pornography, which is kind of like sex with nobody, um, that's prohibited as well. Um, the consistent teaching of the Bible over at least uh, 4,000 years is that all sexual behaviour outside consensual sex within a marriage relationship is wrong. It's disobedient to God. But there's a question. Doesn't modern science and medicine, let alone a more enlightened and civilised world, accept that issues have times have changed since the Bible was written and since God revealed this stuff in the Bible. Haven't times changed? The Bible didn't know, for instance, that gay people are actually born that way uh, rather than choosing it. Now, firstly, not all gay men and women would agree that their homosexuality is something they were born with. Not all people. Many would, but not all of them will. So therefore, we need to allow the gay Christian community to speak for themselves um, and some would say that their homosexuality was a conscious decision that they made at a point in time but be that as it, way, as, as it may um, what we need to understand is from the Bible that being born in any way at all is no reason why we would therefore condone any behaviour which is not honouring 
to God. And given that the majority of humans and the majority of Christians are born with a heterosexual orientation, God still condemns heterosexual sex that does not conform to the provision that he has made for it within a covenantal marriage relationship. So in other words, heterosexuals cannot say, just because I've been born heterosexual, I therefore then am able to express my heterosexuality in ways that I choose to express them outside the marriage relationship. God does not allow that. And the Bible makes it clear that we are all held accountable for our behaviour and so therefore homosexual people are also held to the same standards of behaviour that heterosexual people are held to as well. But if gay people are naturally unattracted to heterosexuals and naturally attracted to others of the same sex, how can God justly judge them for how he has made them? I think again, as Vaughan has said, we have to recognise that we are all broken. We all have dysfunction built into our lives. The Bible says that our bodies, our minds and our spirits are marred by sin and death. And people are called to respond to God in holiness as much as they are able and to strive to live holy lives by the power of God's Holy Spirit, recognising that we fail and we sin at the same time. It's not right, for instance, for a heterosexual person to say, I've been born with a very high sex drive and so therefore um, no one partner will satisfy me sexually. I need many partners. If the argument that's being put forward is that because I've been born that way, that therefore then my insatiable sexual drive is excused by God just because I've been born that way, it's wrong, it's not sufficient. We are, as we see in Genesis, called to be stewards and masters over creation and over our own bodies as well. How is it fair then that gay people cannot express themselves sexually while heterosexual people can? Well, I think heterosexual people would say that in so many cases they groan as much as homosexual Christians and people would groan. In other words, it would be wrong to idealise heterosexuality as one long sexual playground of pleasure and happiness with no problems. I would think here today that many of us in the area of our sexuality groan whether or not we are heterosexual or homosexual. That our sexuality requires mastering and taming. And like I said before, um, it is not, I'll call it a beast and that may not please everybody, I don't mean to dismiss it if it's something beautiful that God has made within us, but uh, it's, it's one of those things that it never seems to get tame. I don't know whether you ever watch Dog Whisperer, Cesar, whatever his name is. Yes, he's great. I love Dog Whisperer. I love watching it. Um, but, you know, I just like the way that he comes in and he seems to be able to master a dog and its temperament like in about 30 seconds. You know, and whoever owns the dog has been trying for years to get the dog to behave. 
You know, it would be just wonderful if there were pastors like that who could just sit with you and give you a kick and your whole sexual temperament is just straight away. Thank you, I needed that. I'm better now. Uh, I'll never sin sexually ever again. That would be really nice. But I fear our sexuality is like some untrained pit bull terrier, you know, or semi-trained, semi-trained. We get it under control, but you've got to watch it closely because it'll bite you sooner or later. And I think that's just the nature of our brokenness. So that, that for gay folk, gay Christians, they have to live in a situation where they are mastering their sexuality in the same way that heterosexuals are as well. And it is true that within a heterosexual sexual relationship of marriage, people are able to express themselves sexually and that's a marvellous thing. And all those who aren't in that context may well look with great jealousy at that relationship and say, I would like to be like that and it's not fair that I'm not. All I guess I would like to say is it's not just homosexual people who might look at the idealised marriage relationship and say it's not fair. There are many single people who would love to be married. There are many people who were once married and are no longer married and who would like to have still been married and they don't have any control over it. There are many people who groan inwardly because of sexual brokenness in our world and in their life and in their body as well. And we also need to note, I think, that Paul says in the reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, was it 1 Corinthians chapter 6? What's the reading from? Sorry. 1 Corinthians 6. I won't open because there's not enough room on the lectern here for me to open it. But but Paul makes the point that our sexuality is wired to us in such a way that sexual sin has far more severe consequences and is more severe in its sinfulness than some other sins. What Paul is saying is that all sin is sin, but me being greedy at dim sum on Tuesday staff and pinching the last chassis bow just because I'm greedy is not quite the same as committing adultery. Both may be sin. My greediness may be inconsiderate. My use of my tongue to say something which hurts somebody else is sin. Um, It may well be that we have people in the church who are gluttons. They eat too much or they spend too much. And that is a sin that needs to be mastered. But sexual sin goes to the very heart of our being. It impacts us in a way and it impacts other people in a way which has a greater severity. And so therefore we need to recognise that in our sexual, our sexual expression it really is important that we seek to master it, that we seek to be master over our sexuality 
and indeed allow Christ to be master over it as well. And so for the question, do you have to be heterosexual to be a Christian? The answer must be no, but you don't have to be homosexual either. We can all choose to be people who are in need of grace and our sexual orientation, our sexual um, nature and inclination of whatever sort it is must be mastered and offered up to Christ as something which is um, to be used for our glory and his holiness, his glory and his holiness, and for our glory as well. And we need to recognise, therefore, then, that inappropriate sexual activity of any sort cannot be dressed up to be acceptable before God if God himself has already told us that it's not to be. So my last question really is, where does that leave homosexual people in relation to Christian faith and the church? Well, I think uh, what I've been saying and what we've seen on the video is that homosexual people in the life of the church stand no differently to heterosexual people. There is no difference their sexual, their sexual identity, their sexual inclination will be different to heterosexuals. But our sexual identity and our sexual inclinations must all be mastered inclinations within the life of the church. So therefore, heterosexual people within the church must live chaste holy lives and homosexual people must live chaste and holy lives in uh, Corinthians Paul takes very strong issue against a man who has committed incest he says the man must be thrown out of the church as a punishment so that he might be brought to his senses so that he might repent and turn from his wickedness and live but it's very interesting, for instance, that Paul never says that gluttons should be thrown out of the church or drunkards should be thrown out of the church as a judgment. So we see that sexual expression within the church that's inappropriate is something that is a really serious issue that we ought to be conscious of and it's something that we have to take very, very seriously. But we ought not to pick on homosexual people and make that the thing that we're going to hone in on, we need to understand that all people are sexual beings and so therefore we ought to uphold sexual holiness, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. And so therefore where does that leave homosexual Christians, homosexual people? Well, I would say where does it leave homosexual Christians? It leaves them as valid members of the church they don't, I don't think homosexual Christians need to, using the modern terminology, come out to the whole church. I don't think that um, if you have committed, if you are a heterosexual person here today and you have uh, a sexual failure in your life, I don't think it necessarily means you must come and declare it to the whole congregation. That might be something you might choose to do but I don't think you have to do it. I think that you need to declare it to someone 
and if you're married, your spouse, um, your pastor, and hopefully a circle of Christian friends who can love you and support you and help you rebuild your life as a result of that. But therefore, then, I don't think that if you are of homosexual orientation in the church, neither do I think that you are a class of person you must, almost like the lepers of old, hang a sign around your neck that says, unclean, unclean, so that everybody knows who you are and we can judge you from afar. I don't think that's what is being expected at all. And what I'm saying is that the state of homosexual orientation is no more unclean than the state of heterosexual orientation, especially when it's misused and not used in the right kind of way. What I would say to people who are not Christians, I think I'd say to us as a church here today, in general, I would love to think that Shartin Church could hang up a big sign. I've said this to um, St Andrew's Church as well. Um, I'd love to think that we could hang up a sign, and you might hang it up here, that says, we don't care who you are or what you've done when you walk through the door. We don't care. You are welcome. We don't care what you've done in the past, what failures, whatever. We don't care. Welcome. We don't care what your sexual identity or orientation is. Welcome. We don't even care what you believe when you walk through the door. Welcome. But whoever you are and in whatever state of life, faith or sexuality you are in, you will change if you stay here. You will change. Because Shatin Church is a changing community. We're all about change. Growth is the air we breathe at Shatin Church. We are all seeking to become more like Jesus. And so for all of us, when you walk through the door, whoever you are, whatever you believe, however you feel and whatever you've done, you're welcome. But if you stay here we can guarantee that you will change. And how we have entered the door will be different perhaps to the way we leave that door Sunday after Sunday because we believe that we are all becoming more like Jesus day by day. So therefore, if I could just go back to that question again, do you need to be, homos- need to be heterosexual to be a Christian? The very fact that that question is even asked is an indication that in our church at St Andrews, we've given the impression you do. And we should repent of that. And we should go out of our way to seek to be an open-handed and loving congregation that welcomes people in any way they are, accepting the fact that welcoming people does not mean that we are all going to say, let's just stay the way we are. We want to see change and we want to see growth. And it also means that for you here at Chartin Church, firstly, if you are of a homosexual orientation, then you ought to understand that you are no less or no more than anybody else. You are equally a valid member of this church. 
But your behaviour, just like everyone's behaviour, ultimately must conform to the likeness of Christ. And that will be a struggle. And every one of us can admit failure. And when we fail, we need to understand the forgiveness that Christ has already won for us. And as a church, we will be a growing community of people who accept and understand that we are broken and we will not be whole, let alone sexually whole, until Christ returns again. Okay, um, the, the youth have come back in, which is usually a sign that it's time to shut up and stop. But I'm just going to turn a blind eye for one minute and say, is anybody game to ask any question that you want to ask? Ah, Matthew. What do I think about gay bishops? Well, uh, what do I think about gay clergy? Uh, what do I think about gay bishops? Um, I, I think uh, that what I've, I've, I haven't used the, the phrase explicitly, but we must always differentiate between homosexual orientation and homosexual practice. And so therefore, um, a man or a woman nowadays... That's another issue, male and female. But man or, a man or a woman who is consecrated as a bishop, if they are sexually chaste, then I think it's irrelevant. If they are openly, and the, it's the North American Episcopal Church in the Anglican Communion which has really led the, uh, led the argument on this, that, uh, that, that, that sexual orientation is, is one of the last frontiers of civil rights. Um, and yeah, I, John, Bishop John Shelby Spong, who was the Bishop of Newark many years ago, came to Hong Kong and gave an interesting talk once. Um, he noted that in the Middle Ages, I'm left-handed, he noted in the Middle Ages they used to drown left-handed people. So, you know, I do dig the, that, that there's been certain discrimination shown against different people. And so for him, the, the whole issue of being gay is the last civil right that needs to be conquered. So um, in, in North American Episcopal Church, um, practicing gay, gay Christians who are in a practicing relationship uh, is, is deemed to be acceptable. But I, I don't think that scripture allows sexual expression outside a heterosexual covenantal relationship. And neither do I think that the, the argument that if a gay gay couple are in a loving committed relationship that that allows sexual, sexual expression to be blessed by God because again I think that any sexual behaviour outside a heterosexual marriage relationship is, is not blessed by God having said that I do understand why people who are homosexual long companionship and, and, uh, and being able to maybe live in a relationship where they have other people and they can share property. And, do, and I think that that's a very complex area. I don't think you can just write a simple rule down for that. And I know that there are churches in Australia that I have visited regularly where there are couples, gay Christian couples, living under the same roof in a chaste relationship, sexually chaste relationship, and, um, and I think, well, we live in a, a broken world 
in which it's very difficult to, to, to have, I actually wrote down the term on the back, um, we, we, we need to live with a broken wholeness and an imperfect holiness. Now those of us who, those of us, not me, but those of you who have been divorced and remarried will understand the notion of a broken wholeness or an imperfect holiness. We had a couple in a church I was a, a member of some years ago where the wife had left her husband and the husband had left his wife. They had married and they had children and they had left children in the marriage and they came to the church I was a party, a, a member of. And the question was, what should we do with this couple? And some people said they should go back to their partners, their original partners. And I said, so... We've got children in broken marriages whose father and mother have left them to go and live with somebody else. And now we've got children in this marriage and so we think that what we're going to say to those children is you have, your parents are living in a loving, committed relationship of marriage but we want to break that up so that they go back to relationships that may not work so that these kids then lose out as well. And so we ultimately said, as far as we can see, we live in an imperfect and broken world, that um, the couple are together in a loving marriage relationship with children um, and the brokenness of the past can't be undone, but it doesn't, make it, it doesn't make it better by making it worse as well. And I think the same, that there are some circumstances in which gay Christians are living together in a chaste relationship and you've got to say that under God, they, they, we don't normalise that and say everybody should do that but that is the way it has worked out but, uh, but for gay bishops I would think that if they are chaste that would make no difference yes yes it does sorry was there more to that question <laughs> yes it lays down um, it lays down the, uh, the, the declarations of leadership um, and it raises the question as to uh, whether or not um, a person, be it a man or a woman, ought to be appointed as a bishop in the first place, I think. Yep, any, uh, any other questions? Okay, um, I think, uh, let me just conclude with a prayer and then we're going to sing, I think.